Hi everyone, and I'm really, really uh, excited and happy to welcome back two familiar faces to the podcast. Uh, so I'm going to go in chronological order of whose uh, episodes were released, to be fair, because I don't know who to introduce first. <laughs> so we're joined by Tamari Richardson today and Sheila Kay. So ladies, thank you so much for joining me again today. And it's really nice to uh, get to see you both and yeah, to have this uh, really important conversation, which I think is something I've been thinking about for a little while, um, you know, with everything that's that's happening at the moment after the murder of George Floyd and um, my own, uh, I guess, continuing education into anti-racism uh, work and uh, really mental health is what I'm all about. So really trying to understand as an outsider, the racial injustice uh, in mental health services. And I thought it was something we're on the show, we are all about having these uncomfortable conversations sometimes and talking about things that really need to be talked about. So um, thank you so much for joining me for this, this conversation today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's, uh, let's just dive in. Um, so I guess um, my first question, I think maybe if we talk about first of all, racism and the impact that racism generally has on mental health. Um, because I think this is something that we've been seeing more of on the news and things like microaggressions that have been being talked about. And there might be some listeners listening to this who hear the word and they're not really sure what that means. So I wonder if you could speak around that and, and kind of the impact that that has on mental health. I can give uh, my perspective from kind of two areas. One is that I've experienced it for decades. This is not just something new. So I can give a decades long perspective. And also, well, actually three. The second would be that I'm not only black, but I'm a woman as well. So there's a bias that, that I've lived with as well as that. And thirdly, because I am a PTSD survivor. And so the mental health aspect of it and what I would see through someone, everyone's different, but what I could see from other people's eyes. And with that, in my opinion, comes it, however long we stay on this podcast wouldn't cover everything that, that would surmise what is going on and what's going on. But basically in the minds and the hearts of black people today, in just light of, let's say the past two months is a direct hit to the mental and even physical well-being of people, both black and white, but especially black, because there's a level of fear, I feel, a level of fear that is at the most intense that I've seen in my entire life. And I'm sure Tamari would agree. Absolutely, Sheila. And I think when you're someone that might already be struggling with mental illness, uh, such as myself with anxiety and um, also like Sheila, PTSD, these things heightened and elevate those feelings and those emotions. So if you thought for a second that maybe uh, it was okay to feel comfortable walking down the street or it was okay to feel comfortable driving and not having to worry about if you get pulled over because maybe there's something wrong with uh, your automobile or if you're in a different location, this brought us back to the place that nothing's changed. It's just as severe as it's always been. And the simplest thing could mean your life. So someone already dealing with anxiety, imagine the level of angst that you get needing to leave to go outside your home, being a person of color, but most importantly, being a black man is even more so having a bullseye um, than anything else. But for black women, having black sons, black fathers, black brothers, it is a constant fear that we live with from those that we're supposed to trust the most. Yes. And the mental health aspect of it, which, which you're saying, is there are several types of fear, several things to be extremely fearful of. As you say, your very life, the fear of that, the fear of being judged by both sides. Are you too pro-Black or, or you know, are you too pro-white? All of that, the fear that we, that we undergo as Black people that each day we're we're fearful because before this last thing happened and by far it wasn't the only thing but this last large George Floyd situation happened we were already in fear for our lives with the coronavirus and so we had we, we had that fear kind of hovering for months at a time and then this hit 
I am very concerned with everybody that I talk to that has even the slightest amount of mental health issue, anxiety, depression, things like that. I try to stay in touch, especially with people in my church, of people that I know and family that I know are already wrestling with that because it's compounded upon compounded. And even the word fear doesn't even touch the surface of what we're already feeling and we're feeling a serious issue, a life-threatening issue upon this situation on top of it. It's, it's almost unbearable for some people, people I've talked to can barely get up in the morning. Marie, you said about that fear of going outside, but it's not just going outside because there's some things I've seen about that, the, the threat of things coming inside as well with if, uh, you know, for some reason, um, someone is suspected of something that the police can and have had situations where they've gone into the wrong home. So I suppose I would imagine that that just adds to it that even when you're at home, there's maybe that fear of, is that safe? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I was thinking for each of these situations, Brianna Taylor, which is a prime example, Brianna Taylor, George Floyd, uh, the different ones that have died by the hands of police, there's actually a different story behind it, behind what happened that can elicit different kinds of fear. As you said, you have the one of somebody coming in, you have the one of you going out. I have the one when I, when I go out, am I presented as some kind of threat or especially my husband who does have a different personality type, if you know what I mean, that he will be seen as a threat. So I have the familiar fear. Uh, I have a son, two sons-in-laws and one of my sons-in-law is white. And so I have a fear in where they, they live is uh, not very racially diverse and it's a small town. I'm in the Southern United States. And so I have the fear that somebody won't see, like what they see with them. So I fear for my daughter and I fear for her husband who I dearly love, I fear for them. So it's just each example shows different things that can happen in different scenarios that we have to fear, watch out for. It's like living with your shoulders hunched every, every minute of the day. Absolutely. And we have to get back to where if if law enforcement stuck to the mantra of you are innocent until you are, you know, have been considered guilty, then you don't go in with guns blazing. Then you don't um, decide that someone that comes out of a grocery store deserves to snuff to breathe his last breath on the sidewalk because you're going to let a judge handle that. You're going to let his peers handle that. But I do believe that the dichotomy of some individuals when they get a badge in hand and the authority that is comes with that and an unlimited amount of power, and then you have the media. And then you have the historical creation of that black people are bad, they're evil, they're the aggressor. I've even been places where uh, white women have clutched their purses and me being in their vicinity. Now my purse is much more expensive and I guarantee I have much more in it, but seeing me as a black woman automatically means that I'm going to do something to you. And until we change that mindset and we take this unperceived endless power that law enforcement has that you do whatever you want, then we're gonna continue to see Breonna Taylors or Richard Brooks who got shot in the back who couldn't have been hurting anyone from a distance of running. We're gonna to continue to see that. So we have to make sure that we are, what you're doing today, being really upfront with these conversations, non-apologetic, communicative, it's gonna be the only way that we're really going to get into why these things are happening and how we can effectively change them. That's true, and, and piggybacking on that. So as you say, we have <clears throat> these conversations. And what occurred to me the other day was every person that, that, that cares about this situation, they're having conversations. They're either having it with other people or they're having it on social media. And I pointed out to my husband, I said, everybody has a platform, no matter how large or small. And for me personally, now I need to step beyond conversation. There are things that I need to do be, besides putting up posts or besides even having, this is a, a, I think the second or third interview where I've weighed in on this issue. So for each of us, white, black, whoever, we need to decide what is your next step beyond the post? What is your next step beyond the interview? For me, I decided I'm going to spend 
cut the pie a little differently and I'm going to spend now more time educating myself as educated as I am in this particular area this is new to me how do you how do you handle that and maybe I'll do some humanity studies or maybe I'll you know do some other studies so I decided and told my husband I'm splitting taking some time away so much from posting on social media taking some time away and doing some action steps which for me begins with education more education on this very more pinpoint i should say education mm -hmm. geared toward this thing and then seeing where does that lead me what's the next step for that so it's a forward walk it's a forward motion because this these type of conversations weren't happening as much a year or two ago so that's a leap there but then we have to keep keep the momentum and keep going yeah i think that's that's so important because i think the the conversations and i've i've um been uh engaging in education as well and um around anti-racism around uh education specific because that's part of what i do and health specific i've got a whole day summit coming up um to really mm -hmm. think about the areas i'm in and how i can increase my understanding because i don't have the personal lived experience so that if uh, for the people I'm supporting, and I am in a very white area. Um, when I did my teacher training, we went into London when we were thinking about working um, with, uh, yeah, diverse groups of people because Somerset, where I live, is, yeah, very, very white. And um, and I th and there was something that was mentioned on them, which was about this importance of action that we can have these conversations, and we can talk about it, and we can post things on social media. But like you said that's not going to change things by itself and you get the kind of performative ally allyship which is look at me look i'm i'm uh, on board with this and then not really doing anything and i think particularly for white people not really questioning the way things have been and not doing that looking at ourselves and um or what i've seen a fair amount of is people starting to do that and then really centering themselves and like oh this is really uncomfortable this is and making it about them a lot and and i wonder whether you've had lots of um well how you found it having these conversations now how you found um interacting with white people you know whether you've seen like a real difference and and how that feels to suddenly have people go oh i'm really interested in racism now and let's do something about it well i know that i have seen the two spectrums either those who really understand the whole necessity of um, the movement that is going on now or those who don't understand it don't care about it it's not a part of their lives they don't want to deal with it and they don't look at you and i think one of the things that's most important is i liken racism to um, another horrible thing domestic violence because if you're a man or a woman and you're the victim of domestic violence domestic violence can't be cured or recovered with you it's the person really that has the problem that has to deal with the issues. You're dealing with the symptoms. Racism is the same thing. Black people didn't create it. This is not something we started. It has to be something that white people look at. Uh, honestly, they take a deep look at what their biases are because that's the only way that it can stop. We didn't create it. We're not peddling it. We're not perpetuating it. We're living in it. And unless white people who are allies or individuals that see that this is biased, how I be, how I, I acted with my neighbor, or I didn't hire this person because really because they were black, but they had just as much experience as their white counterparts, until that's handled and dealt with, this is going to be a consistent problem. But this is white people's problem. We're just dealing with the effects of what was created and put on us like a badge. And we're trying to get it off, but we can't get it off because we need your help to get it off because they, in essence, created it. And so, you know, that has to take place. There has to be a partnership there. Going back to, that's so true. And going back to when we talked about those fears, it occurred to me that one of my fears, the question you asked about the conversations, is that anti-racism and all that comes with it will become more fashionable than sincere wearing of the shirts it's like the masks uh advertising uh, my husband works for the veterans affairs department and they has this the mask this is plastered i'm a veteran i'm a this but it'll become more fashionable 
to wear Black Lives Matter t-shirts or on a higher level for businesses to hire more Black people and do all of these, this facade than, than, than sincerity. Of course, we cannot change the way white people feel about us. And that I don't think, I think Tamuri would agree, it is not our goal to change hearts. However, it is our goal to change behaviors. And if you're wearing anti-racism as a cover so that you don't lose business or you don't lose, you know, some kind of service or what that, it doesn't even penetrate to, to the point of, I'm going to continue to do this after this is this season is over with. So as fashion is in different seasons, I'm starting to see, and I'm fearful of that. I'm starting to see that this will become fashionable, primarily with whites. I don't have that fear as much with blacks because we wear this skin every day. We wear this same skin. So we, we can't take these clothes off. But my, my fear is that it will become fashionable and like most fashion, it will fade away over time and we're back to back to square one. Yeah, I, I mentioned briefly before we, we came on air, I was uh, doing a little bit of research into uh, mental health uh, in the UK and the racial disparity. And there was a report in 2005, which was very clearly, these are the recommendations. Yes, there, there is a, a racial difference uh, in outcomes and access and made recommendations. And then a follow-up in either 2017 or 2019 basically said the same thing, that there's still the, these, this difference in outcomes and, and access. Um, and that we need to really have action, not just more research into this, this is this is what's happening. Um, so I wonder whether that's something we could talk about, the kind of access to mental health services, the way that mental health services may treat people differently based on, on race. And uh, if you have any thoughts or experience around that. Well, I know um, for being a mental health advocate, I'm a speaker and presenter for NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And I'm also a member of the National Coalition of 100 Black Women in the Oakland Bay Area. And we were just getting ready to do our second webinar on mental health, the Black experience. And one of the, the things that I do in both of my organizations is uh, give them the statistics. Only 30% of Black Americans in the United States alone are seeking mental health. So you have a whole uh, demographics and a sector that are not. But also to understand that some of the reason why, um, not speaking for all Black people, but some of the reason that um, my culture have, has not taken part into mental health is that we've always predominantly been a religious culture. From the days of slavery, that was the thing that we felt was going to carry us through. We prayed, we read the Bible, we understood, we believed the word, we lived in it. Um, even when we were being beaten, raped, and mistreated, we still believed in God. That was one of the things that held us through. So I think over time, um, the preachers uh, in the various different religious organizations, people have felt most comfortable taking their problems and their concerns to the individuals in their religious um, in their religious sectors because they can trust them, they can believe them. And what we've seen from white people over a history of time, not all white people, but um, a lot of times you seek treatment and the treatment has not been for the betterment of you. Or look at the history of... Um, the different uh, medical experiments that Black people were subjected to. So there's a history and a long history of distrust of the medical profession um, that we're trying to catch up with and that we're trying to make sure that um, Black Americans understand that you have more power in how, but if you need assistance, we are probably one of the most susceptible races to PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, due to a lot of different reasonings, anxiety, depression, and then coping and going through life, getting into relationships and dragging another person into your mental inability to move forward and love and um, nurture because you haven't dealt with you. So it's definitely something in our community that I've, I'm an advocate for. There's a lot of organization, wonderful organizations, NAMI's one, National Coalition of 100 Black Women is definitely one, where we're trying to make sure that Black Americans have the resources, have the information, and um, also help them get the resources that they need because we are one of the cultures that are, unfortunately, we're not getting, we're not going and seeking that help, but it, it's also understandable from our history. True, very, very true. And those are excellent resources that you named. I'm kind of getting familiar with them now or recently, but um, 
along with that, uh, we have to self care, not only ourselves, but those around us. As black families, we have to be our first line of defense. We have to watch to see signs of depression. Maybe a family member doesn't have full-blown PTSD, but if we know and are educated by some of the groups that you mentioned and people like you to Murray, if we know what those signs are, we can recognize what is going on. And as we change and accept mental health help, we can start pouring that information before they even set foot in a psychiatrist or therapist's office, start in that household, start in that family and start with people around us. I recently attained a client that he's, he's a, um, he's a vet and he's a young man in his thirties, but he has PTSD and then he's dealing with, with other things, but he's not, as you well know, or probably both of you well know, he's not, you don't look at him and say, oh, you know, he looks strong, healthy, he's all of this. Well, I'm helping him with his autobiography and he's sending notes to me in audio files and I listen to him mainly at night. And I remember last week hearing him talk about his mother and I realized he's still suffering from some effects. So the next time I met with him, I just let him talk and see, and he admitted, yes, I do. I say, are you on medication? He said, yes. Are you seeking therapy? He said, yes. He said all of these things, but truth be told, I am still suffering. So what, what are our family members and the people we come in contact, what are they hiding? What are they hiding from us? What are they hiding behind? And they have all of this going on around them. So they're dealing with that, first of all. But what about what's happened to them in the past? Is that still affecting them to the point where they do need to, to seek help? And only we can be the eyes and ears of people that we are close to and watch, learn and watch what those signs are to get them to get help. That was a great point, Sheila. Great. Yeah. And there's, there's something, again, and I'm just referring to the research because, yeah, that's my sort of my in. I'm an intellectualizer anyway. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, and, and there was something about this idea of with mental health services trying to get you to a point where you're cured isn't the right word, but you know, you've kind of moved through uh, whatever you're seeing them for. And that actually, if um, racism is, uh, is still part of your life and is still that um, the world that you're living in, then actually the model that you're working through, it's, it's not fully taking into account everything that's going on in your life. And that actually this idea of what successful treatment looks like maybe has to change to and i guess this maybe links to that culturally appropriate treatment and and i wonder if you have any thoughts on on that yeah i think you're absolutely right uh dealing with racism is an ongoing thing in the mental health world we say recovery because if you have some type of uh, mental health uh, situation that you're dealing with you're always in recovery you can always have a, a PTSD uh, relapse, if you will, or depression can come out five years later when you've had no issue. So when you're consistently dealing with racism, you're absolutely right. How do you ever get out of that place? And I don't have an answer for you because we're nowhere even near knowing the potential or the capabilities to be there because we're always dealing with it. And I think to even get your hopes up, I, I, I dare to hope with the protesters, I, me and my mother talk about this all the time, how these young people are taking it a step further. I remember back in my days, the biggest thing, and, and I know there were things going on, but they weren't as publicized as Rodney King. And that was horrific. And then there was the riots that uh, came from that, but that was only for a few days. What these young people are doing now gives me a much more um, involved sense of hope because they have been going on for a, almost about a month. They have been committed, they have been standing in it. And I think what Sheila brought out earlier was not only sit back saying, oh my God, it's horrible, this is, this is the worst thing that ever happened, but getting involved and what can you do to help further this along so that one day we can say, you know what, my name is Tamori Richardson and I'm in recovery from racism. We might be able to say that one day. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'm hopeful too. But uh, yeah, like you say, it's a lot of structural change, lots of societal change. Right. But yeah, I, I think it's, um, and my my social media, I, I think there's probably been a mix of the kind of on the bandwagon type thing, but also people who are really mm -hmm. going, actually, I'm really 
going to do something. I'm really going to think about my choices. I'm really going to look at my my own bias and and actually do something, um, which I think is really positive. Um, there was another thing I wanted to touch on, and this is a UK statistic, but I imagine that it's, it's a similar picture in the US. And that's that in the UK, um, and, and in the UK, um, we talk about BAME is our kind of, I don't know, umbrella term for Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic. And, and they break down um, the research into different groups. And I think it's um, the statistic is for people of African Caribbean uh, heritage that they are 40% more likely to access mental health services having come through the criminal justice system rather than primary care. So they're not going to their doctor, their, their GP, they're coming through that criminal system. And I wonder if that's a similar pattern in, um, in the US. Can't quote statistics, I'm not sure if Tamari can, but Again, I'm here as a black woman and most of what I say is based on what I live, see, or have heard. And in my circle, I have seen that when people are forced to do pretty much anything, that, that they'll do it. <laughs> they, whether it's incarceration or whether they exhibit some type of behavior, sometimes criminal, that forces them to be evaluated for their mental health, sadly. That's, that's what triggers it. For me, uh, me seeking mental health outside of the church, I am a Christian, as you, as you know, Hannah, but outside the church, as you said, uh, Tamari, me seeking, knowing I, I need a little bit more than prayer here, was my own behaviors. Fortunately, I was self-aware enough and had people who loved me enough to see, like, you know, something's really wrong. And it was six months past my trauma that I even sought that help. So for people who are, as you say, incarcerated or any, any type of institutionalized situation they're in, or who maybe have done something criminal, we've seen where some people who have been getting killed, some black men, had mental health issues going on, and they were killed because of it. And so most, I don't know the statistics again, but a, a lot of people that I know and that they've told me about have been, they were forced some way or another i don't mean physically forced but some something happened and they were forced to get that help sadly they were forced to get that help after that and a lot of times that could be getting help for a situation or a condition that was years old it didn't just manifest then mm -hmm. and that's what breaks my heart because i see people like the young man i mentioned earlier that something had been going on for a long long time even before he went into military service, something had been going on from his childhood. And I, I think also uh, another great point that Sheila brought out is that imagine coming out of the, the prison system and you're being told that a part of your probation or parole is to go see a therapist every week, every two weeks, whatever the case might be. You don't trust the prison system. You know this is rehabilitation. You know this is not team you. So I'm going to go meet with this person that they want me to meet with. I'm not going to tell them the truth. I'm not going to give them no information because I don't trust the system anyway. Not only do I not trust the system, I don't believe that this person really has an interest in me and they're just trying to check a box to show that they did some type of psychological review with me. So now this same person that got really no psychological treatment who probably went into prison already, stemming from, as you stated, Sheila, possibly some issues from childhood, has made it through the prison system, made it through this fake potential therapy, and is now back out into the world. Yay us. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's important. <laughs> it's really important that we make sure that the treatment that they're going to get, look, this is the system they're creating. creating. If you're going to put us in prison for every little thing and our white counterparts are still out there skipping and, yes. and on parole or on probation and not being held accountable, if you're going to put us in prison for every little thing, at least give us the courtesy of getting good services and having good support and making sure that when we get out, we can hold ourselves up and that we're not back in the same place. But that's a part of the systemic racism. That's a part of the justice system not being fair, not playing fair. But you'll get the services once you come out of incarceration, but what type of services are they? And we find out that most of these people end up back in prison in the first place. So what was the service? That's right. Excellent. That That is so excellent. I, I would like to imagine, and on my wish list to Murray, is that 
we could get more input, help, resources before it gets to that point. Yeah. That's why yes. it's so important to keep your eyes and ears open. Yeah. Any, yeah. any symptoms or any hint of, even as children, I have a seven-year-old granddaughter who when school says she loves school. She's in the gifted student program. And for some reason, at some point during her beginning of the school year, she just started changing. We, you know, we looked and we looked into it. Is somebody bothering her? She worried about it. And she started saying all of these negative type things. And it was a child in her class that constantly was feeding into her ears. So keeping, if we could take a step back. And, and you probably heard this to worry, just be, be a village, mm -hmm. children, starting with our children and watch, what am I seeing here? Not so concerned with what their talents and what they think. Yes, you have that concern. Yes, I have spiritual concerns and wants and desires for my granddaughter. However, because I know the mental health struggle that I went through, Mm -hmm. I watch, I watch for signs. Is she crying a lot? I asked my daughter, is she sleeping too much? So we carry that on through childhood, through the teenage years, which are rough just by right. them being teenagers to young adulthood. If the village can get around that and, and, and get around, not just my child, but your child, and your, your aunts, and you, we could get around to until the system is changed, which is yes. going to take so much more than I could ever say. But until that, in the meantime, if we can get into that, that being part of our culture, just weaving that into our culture, as you said earlier, being more open to mental health services and being aware of them, which is something you do so well, is informing other people, being aware of them. And then people like you and I, Tamori, and you, Hannah, okay, I'm aware of it. Why? Because I went through it. Nothing says lonely like thinking you're the only one that goes through something. In our culture, you know we're big on that. We look around. Is somebody else doing this? Is somebody else feeling this? So for me, no. I don't even pretend I even know close to the answers. As I said, I look at life through my eyes. What little bit can I sprinkle in this whole situation? My little input that I could sprinkle in that's, first of all, practical, relatable by virtue of my skin color. Yeah. That will help. And to me, if we start with the village mentality from the time they, those black babies come out of the womb and walk them through and don't say, oh, they're 18, they're out of the house now. So I don't, well, you check on those, you check on, especially as you said, our men, check on those babies, check on them. There's so much is going on. They could explode in a moment. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that you're saying about um, people who've been incarcerated and coming out and then whether the services aren't good services and I guess even if they were the best services if you have that distrust of them that's that barrier and so you know starting like you said with children having that awareness of what that's mental health point. is and then if you had services that you could trust so that you could go to them sooner before it escalates to the point where you know the first time um, a mental health issue is is recognized is when there is a is a situation and I think that's something to to work towards and I think yeah that idea of the, the village is um yeah and I've I've been talking all week about <laughs> about modeling to children about emotions and um the importance of that and having these conversations with children because we don't we're not taught about emotions are we and, me and mental health but I think you know we really should be and um yeah so thank you for sharing those um what was the next thing I was going to ask um it was actually thinking about uh about treatment and you know I think uh, at the moment I'm on the pathway of training to be a counsellor and, and and that kind of process to really work with people and I guess as, as a, a white counsellor hopefully one day is you know whether I'm trying to think how to phrase the question but, but whether as a white counsellor I am able to help someone who comes to see me be, with this experience which I cannot know because I haven't lived it is it possible for me to be able to help them um, and would they want me to help them that kind of question because I think for uh, possibly white professionals maybe that's maybe that's a question or you know an area to think about and that's not a very well worded question sorry <laughs> sorry about that I would say absolutely my therapist that I've been seeing for a while now is a man and he's a white man 
and he is absolutely fabulous. I didn't go in there uh, with the um, the agenda of racism, but let me tell you, it has been multiple pieces of discussion. And uh, what he does when I start to rant about something that happened or um, you know, I was in a setting with a bunch of white women and them trying to keep me in my place and uh, I don't have a place. So that turned out interesting. <laughs> but what I appreciate about him is he listens. He doesn't make judgment. He doesn't try to solve the problem because he can't. But he listens. He allows me to uh, vent and communicate and he has no judgment. A lot of people don't understand, and I do a lot of um, responding on Quora, uh, which is a kind of an online support group for people dealing with narcissism, bipolar disorder, and all that, is that therapy is not there to fix your problem. That's not what your therapist is there for. Your therapist is there to help you reach your epiphany of aha moment. They're there to listen, steer you, and guide you. So when I'm venting and ranting and raving, and sometimes he'll laugh because I'll be like, whoo, I'm sorry, today was a rough day. But he listens, and as a white person, he understands that he doesn't know how to steer me in that direction. He doesn't want to say anything that's going to offend me, and I appreciate that, but he listens. He allows me to vent. Sometimes he might confirm, but for the most part, he's the listening ear, because that's all I need. I don't need you to fix it. Just listen to me, <laughs> rant and rave, and curse about it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I agree totally, and speaking to you personally, Hannah, you ask, can you? And I'd certainly, everything I've seen about you and know about you, I have no doubt that you can. I have no doubt that you will. And the mere fact that you ask that will make you even more successful in what you're doing and what you're trying to do. I would say for not just you, but all mental health and other professionals, it's the main thing is don't assume. Don't assume anything. Don't assume because we're black, this, that, or the other, because we have more in common than as humans, just as humans. Then, so don't assume, just do what you, you just did, which was ask. Mm. As, a, as a black woman, I know that is my, I, I stand on that. Ask the question. Don't, don't assume, don't, don't assume. And, and the gifts that you have been giving, given, you just use that as you've been using it. This is just another phase in that. Unfortunately, you've come in a time where you can make real impact on whoever it is you talk to, regardless of the race. Mm. I'm sure of that. Mm. Yeah, I think the the thing that I, I guess my my view of the world, if you like, is that the only experience I can ever know is my own. So in the mental health space, someone else who's depressed, and I've I've been talking about depression and anxiety on other shows, and people ask me, you know, what does it look like? And all I can say is, this is what it looked like for me because like you say, we all are, you know, we have shared humanity, shared similarities, but we're individuals. And so even someone else who on paper looks like very similar to me, that's similar right. background, depression, they're still not me. Um, and so that's, <laughs> that's, I think my view when I, when I meet everyone is that I don't know your experience. So I, I approach it, I approach people with curiosity, I guess, to try and understand. And so maybe that is a good, a good way to just generally approach people <laughs> rather than assuming because that's right yeah that's absolutely everyone comes with their own baggage it's like you you buy baggage real literal baggage it comes in different sizes shapes different brands but somewhere in the world somebody else unless you've had it custom made has the same set of baggage that you have as the same purse or outfit that you have and to me that's that's in humanity pretty much where that there's somebody that no one can be Sheila no one can can look exactly like Sheila, uh, but there are there are other women that are in my age group, my racial makeup, or, or not, that have had similar experiences, and we can bring that to the to the table, and and affect change on on some level. That that's the key, I think. It's some of us may reach too high too fast. That we have people not among us, but we have people that think, okay, we're gonna bully our way one way or the other. We're gonna bully our way into making everybody think the same way that we think. Yeah. And a lot of this is, is, is the reason why. The white people are trying to bully us physically, mentally, emotionally, monetarily. And then there are some on our side that we're going to, we're going to bully you. And that's one of my pet peeves. 
don't tell me how to think. Even black people, please don't tell me how to think. I am going to reach conclusions. I have eyes and I have ears. I see what's going on. I'm angry about it, but let me express that my way. Don't force me, let alone a white person telling me what to think, what to do and how to be and to accept, to accept whatever is given out to me as some gift from heaven. <laughs> Those are the things, being, being relatable, but yet, as you said, Hannah, recognizing we are different, we bring, you may see the same thing a different way. Nobody's gonna see it exactly and being accepting of that, that I am different. And I would love to see the day when it goes beyond, I am just different because of the color of my skin. I am a unique, very unique individual and I'm comfortable in that uniqueness. But yet I can relate to Hannah, who's all the way across the pond. Mm. <laughs> I can relate to her and sit with her and sit with my sister here and we can all talk. Totally different people and all, and all talk honestly and openly without the pretense or, oh, I better, I better bash this group or I better say this or I'm not, or I'm not really black if I don't agree with everything. It, no. No, the, finding what's in common, stand, starting with that, as small as it may be, I don't know. But that's, to me, I see that going on in the world so much. Everything is so polarized. You're either for this completely or, or we're taking your black car or, you know, that's it. You, you didn't say enough online. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You know, be, sit in that. I, I sit in my sister here, we sit in our blackness. We sit the same way we have to sit in our womanhood. We sit in that. And that's to me where the, the purity, the purity can be seen. If I'm on this show and putting these things out and putting these posts off and wearing the right t-shirts just for just to show, just for show, then whatever I put out is not going to be pure. And it, it it won't help anybody, not even my own family, which is where I start. Sheila is absolutely right. She eloquently said that, definitely. And, and I think starting into your own practice, um, one of the things that she absolutely, that Sheila absolutely said, we're not a monolithic people. So we, there's very different shades to how we think, how we operate, how we look. And uh, you will be able to bring your value to someone because ultimately the desire should be that you go to someone because their ideology and your ideology on your treatment and your recovery works for you. Not just me getting with someone black or not just with me getting with someone white because I'm white, but that you see a commonality between what your needs are. So Sheila eloqu eloquently put it, so I don't have to go much further on that, but I think just knowing that we're different individuals and uh, treat us accordingly. Yeah, hmm. yeah. awesome, awesome. Thank you for that. Um, so, I guess um, I'm just conscious of your time and not taking up your whole evening or morning or uh, <laughs> because I honestly could talk to you both all day. Um, so um, I, one of the things on the podcast is we like to give people practical sort of takeaways. And uh, we've talked about the importance of kind of action and not just the performative stuff. Um, and so I wonder if you have any thoughts on uh, if someone is listening who is a black listener, what they can do if this is something that they really, um, yeah, want to actually, you know, do some action rather than just, yeah, listening and, and talking. I think um, if you are a black listener and um, definitely no doubt in some time in life you've come across or might even still be dealing with um, the stain of racism, be in service. And I think that is what we as individuals are supposed to do, be in service to each other. How can you make sure that what you're dealing with, the person that comes in behind you don't have to, whether that means getting involved politically, whether that means writing a letter to your local um, you know, assemblyman, local senator, if it means you getting involved um, yourself politically or getting out handing waters to the protesters or get involved and be of service because everything that is being done, I understand, is being done for the next generation. I might never see the, um, uh, the effects that this protest has but hopefully my children who are 13 and 14, um, an aspiring engineer and an artist 
will be able to go out and people see them as individuals who are powerhouses in their own right. So it's important that we not sit back, we not complain about it. Like Sheila had said, our village is important. Parents getting in there, making sure if you see issues that you're trying to make sure your kids are mentally well, but get involved and be in service to your community and making sure that you're helping to make a change with what's going on with us culturally and um, systematically in throughout the world. Right, what she said. I totally agree with, with everything she said. I have <laughs> nothing to add but to confirm what she said and say that I agree with it. And in that service, that's action action make make your thoughts and your feelings a verb <laughs> make them do yeah. do something and sit in whatever it is you're personally led to do as as tamari said it may not be the same thing and don't look over at others and say oh i'm out in the hot sun doing the protest and you're you're just at the computer talking to hannah it, it, we're we're unique in this we bring unique things to the dishes to the table we bring uniqueness. So yes, I absolutely affirm, agree, <laughs> and try to do what was just said. That was that was the whole brilliant. And do you have any thoughts for any white listeners who are listening who really want to do something? Um, I, I would definitely say get involved. If if the stench of racism is truly disgusting to you and you truly believe that we were all made in God's image and you see something that's going on that's not okay, get involved when you see these, as they call them on social media, Karens getting involved to cause conflict. You know, I've made a vial, a vi um, excuse me, I've made an oath, I apologize, as a woman of color, a black woman, that if I see the police pull over, I don't care if it's a black man, black woman, black teenager, I'm pulling over and I'm turning the camera on. Me too. Because I think until we be more involved and until we be actionary, that it's not gonna matter. So until white folks get involved and they see that this is not okay, they call people out, they want their own to be accountable because this is a wonderful platform, Hannah, that you have given us to communicate, but you're not giving it to us because you're trying to solve the problem or you can solve the problem. You're giving it to us because you want us to be able to communicate how you can be of help to what you know the cause is to be. So until white folks get in, get involved and stop this mistreatment, then it's going to continue to happen. So I would encourage them, get involved, videotape, um, you contact your local um, law enforcement if you see things, your local political offices if you see things and demand as a person in this country that you will not stand for racism, biasness, you will not have your black counterparts, brown counterparts being treated as if they are not human. Get involved. That's right. There's, there's no black law that says white people can't get involved with what we're doing. We, we, we will take all the help we can get. Where that's going to start, in my opinion, where that where that would start is back to what I said about the black people. It starts at home. It starts with what thinking, first of all. Maybe you need to walk around with a mirror and see what it is you're thinking that's causing you, even if you don't carry them out, to have negative thoughts or misunderstandings or judgments about black people. Start with there. What are you telling your children? Are you watching not only for signs of mental illness, but are you watching for biases and prejudices in your children? And are you perpetrating those? Have you taught them that? Starting the same, the same goes for black, brown, and as it goes for whites. Watch what's going around in your home. Watch what's going on in your home. Watch what you say. Children, as we all know, they watch everything you say. They watch everything you do, rather, and they will try to mimic it. And they'll process that, and that's what becomes their personality. White people, now especially, watch your baby. Watch what you're showing your babies. Watch what you're teaching them. When I was a personally, when I was about five years old, I was outside playing, and a white couple came. I'll never forget this. And the woman said, "Look at that little n-word. Look at that. That's yes to a child." speaking to her husband, but I heard that. So be, be aware, be aware of what you're saying, what you're portraying to your children. Stop teaching them to be passive aggressive when it comes to racism and to take, as to Murray said, positive action, not just to speak it, but to do it and let them see you doing it. It's 
there. That's a place to start anyway. Mm. Give you a place to start. Mm. And would you say also exploring the unconscious biases that we have? Because there might be people listening who are thinking, well, I'm, I'm not racist. I don't say anything that's that's racist. But when when the whole system is and you know, and we um I don't know if I'm talking for white people or myself, we we maybe don't question the things around us or we don't think about the unconscious things that are going on. So would you recommend that people do that as well to look at those unconscious biases they have, which we can have towards, yeah, I think Harvard have got the tests you can have a little go at and see if you have any implicit biases. Um, Cause I know I've had conversations with people who say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not racist. I'm not, but yeah. You know, I think um, that is really, really a good question because I really think white people think they have to deal with us and communicate with us differently when you really don't even have to deal with us. But if you choose or elect to, we're, we're no different from anyone else. I'm going to give an example. And just in case my neighbor sees that, he knows we have a good relationship, but he's <laughs> a white man. And I'm a communicator. I'm a professional uh uh, motivational speaker and I'm a communication specialist and so grammar is huge to me I was talking to him the other day outside by our adjoining fence and so he said something and then then he said Gombe and I said Gombe I said well that doesn't make sense I told him I said and I was just joking with him I said that doesn't make sense I said did you mean something else he said oh well I'm trying to be um you know a little bit more ethnic or whatever I told him well I don't know any black people that talk like that so I don't know who you're trying to be. But in his mind, he I don't think he intended anything mean by it or anything racist by it. But you feeling that you have to equate everything with being connected to me as a Black woman. That's right. Or one day when he told me that he um, doesn't see color. Well, I see the color in everybody that I see. That's the first thing I see on you. Then I see your gender, period. But I think needing to overcompensate, that's where I think that comes in, where you need to prove that you down. I don't need you having an Afro pick with a fist at the end of it. I don't need you pumping your fist up at me. Just be normal. I communicate just like Sally, <laughs> just like Becky. We communicate the same. You don't have to equate it to my blackness because I hope that's not why we're connecting with each other because of uh, the pigment of my, my skin. So I think it's, it's important to check that. And is it awkward for you to talk to black people? And why is it awkward for you to talk to black people? And do you have to bring it back to color and culture? And, and then don't say anything because it, it kind of makes you look a little foolish when you can't talk to us like we're just individuals and you have to equate some type of hip or, or it, it, yeah, that's, that's menacing. <laughs> that's good stuff. That is good stuff. And so, so, so true. I, I think maybe a lot of white people have that level of arrogance where they feel that unless they, as they see it being honest, unless they dumb me down, we won't understand what they're doing or what they're saying. Here's, here's the thing, just to add to your, your point, is that white people don't have the corner market on bias. Because, and I'll say for myself, even me, I assume, and that's why I can speak on it, not because I've achieved it, but because I live it and I'm aware of it and I constantly try to change it. So black people, especially educated black people, we assume certain things about white people that may not be true. It goes, that's the commonality. It goes both ways. We're not just sitting around. As for me, I always say, I'm not impressed, oppressed, or depressed by white people. It doesn't affect me that you are white. As you say, I do see that, but it doesn't change. I don't sit around and wait oh, please educate me. And I find that to be especially annoying when white people assume that whatever it is I'm doing, I need your input on how to do it. That's back to that assumption. And so now that I'm keenly aware of it these days, I watch it with my own self. Did I really assume, I was somewhere the other day, did I assume she grimmed me? Did I assume that white woman didn't, you know, so I'm a, I'm a not just speaking on it because mm -hmm. I see it, but it's also white people even assume they have the corner market on that. Sometimes we assume they're dumb, yeah. frankly, especially based on their behavior, especially based on their not understanding yeah. and being open 
open to things. So we're thinking a lot of the same things they're thinking. Don't assume because we're black that we have this, like some of the slaves, we have this, oh, we're always innocent and we're always wondering. No, we, we have our problems too. We know that. We're checking ourselves too. So please check right. yourself is my view. <laughs> Absolutely. And just to mention one other thing, uh, this constant need to feel like you, that uh, white people have the right to, to check us all the time or ask what we're doing or how we're doing or why we're doing, we're doing because it's none of your business. We tend to do us and not get into other people's um a business one of the things they always say about the um and sheila i know you've heard this in the um horror movies <laughs> how white people are always looking to see what's going on and, and how that's really kind of true to the fact in life well what's going on why you have an axe in your hand in the dark <laughs> to whereas we gone because it's not our business and we we're finding that more and more where white people feel they have a right to question us and ask why are yeah. you here and what you are doing here and and things of that nature i'm real good with giving people a look and i want you to read what that look means and then i move on about my business but white people have to learn to stop trying to manage us we are not your property we are not your problem and we're really not your business we're trying to live in correlation with you we're not trying to live under you. We're not trying to live over you. We just want to do us. So this consistent while we we bird watching and you calling as a black man in the park or at a hotel, let me see your key because you black and why you here. It's none of your business. If you do, you worry about you and wonder about you, we'll be able to get this whole racism thing knocked out as soon as possible because people who find their own business don't have time to be racist. That's so true. And it, it makes you wonder if what some of the extremists in the black culture say is true. Are, are you doing this out of fear? Right. What are you scared of? Right. What are you scared of? Have you have you regressed all the way back to slavery where you think if we know how to read that we're what? Right. We will fill in the blank. Right. We will what? I am notorious for not answering too much to anybody, but especially <laughs> <laughs> to people that white or black or whatever right. color that is true upon what it is I want to do or why I'm doing or especially why I'm doing right I, I don't answer and that's something sadly that if more of us learn to quit explaining right I, I got somebody the other day about that he had a, a little motorcycle accident and so he was in his own driveway in a home he owns doing some repairs or whatever he was doing. A week later, his white neighbor comes, what was all that noise you were making? <laughs> what was, and he explained. And I don't know, that just, that just kind of got under my craw a little bit. Like, why did you explain? How did that affect him? What do you, we gotta stop doing this. Not to be militant or not to be angry, but I could care less what a week ago, any one of my neighbors <laughs> was doing that didn't right. affect right. me and my household. That's right. Awesome. Thank, thank you for yeah, just um, sharing everything that everything that you've shared. And, and I guess just to finish off, I'd love to know what you um, what you've got going on at the moment, if there's, yeah, anything that you want to share with any listeners, if they want to find out more about you, um, and uh, follow you online where they can do that. I want to say mine real quickly because I would love to end on to Murray and all the all the mental health resources she has. Me, I'm a writer, ghost writer, author. I have a television show, Unmasked with Sheila Kay, that airs on the uh, Paradigm Television Network. So that's on Roku and Amazon Prime. It's a Christian-based talk show, but we talk about world events as well. Um, see all that I do on my website, which is sheilakwriter.com and i'm on all social media outlets as sheila k s h e i l a k a y or sheila k writer all social media outlets that's that's i'm a ptsd survivor and and uh, i advocate also for post traumatic stress disorder but i am excited and i know your listeners are to hear tamari and all she's got going on i've been kind of trolling her on the internet <laughs> 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 well thank you so much the anticipation i hope i uh beat the expectation <laughs> um well as i stated before i'm a presenter and speaker for nami the national alliance on mental illness and every friday from 6 30 to 7 30 uh, via zoom pacific standard time 
I have, um, and I co-chair with another lady by the name of Danny Blackman, and we co-chair a Black Lives Matter support group. And we do that for an hour to give people an opportunity to communicate and speak about what's going on, how they're feeling, and to be able to help get them towards resources if they need to. Um, also through, again, my National Coalition of Black, uh, 100 Black Women membership in the Oakland Bay Area chapter. We have July the 9th, it's the Mental Health Black Experience Part 2. It's going to be a webinar. And it's going to be a two-parter. One is going to discuss COVID-19 sheltering in place and how to mentally navigate that. And the second part is going to be um, in regards to George Floyd and the mental anxiety and the angst that came up from that and how as Black folks we are able to continue to move and navigate. And also on July the 22nd, we're going to be having a, another webinar with the National Coalition. And that's going to be entitled A Tale of Two Worlds, um, Black Americas Being Policed in America as well as we're gonna be talking about the importance of voter registration and the census. We're gonna have um, a chief of police, um, several other wonderful guests, and we're gonna have a special guest, but just trying to help navigate. Um, I also do a lot of speaking um, at work at place with NAMI as to um, helping individuals and black individuals be able to navigate mental illness and getting them the resources that they need. And um, my website is www dot t lean speaks t l e a n n e speaks with s dot com and i have other events coming up so if you want to check that out i'm also an author and i have uh, my second book first instructive novel entitled trusting someone else's heart it will be out in july and it tells my story of being married to someone with mental illness drug addiction bipolar disorder and uh dealing with domestic violence so I've got a lot of things going on, but I'm most important and the most important things that I'm doing is my mental health advocacy is, is what gets me up every morning, hoping that I can help and um, share something with anyone. And I'm also on Facebook, T. Leanne Speaking Pros LLC. So I'm gonna be looking for you, Sheila, so I can connect with you. <laughs> yes, please do connect with me and send me all of your promo on your events. I will be honored to put them on my pages and on ig too beautiful thank you yeah and i'll um share both of your links in the in the show notes and on social media and the events as well and i have a, a question about the events and um and obviously it sounds like they're aimed at black people but whether they are um a space where people like me who are like who are wanting to be active and support people whether it's appropriate for us to attend or whether with limited space it's something that is more not appropriate for us to attend that's not you're saying about grammar i lost the power of speech today <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no that's okay no we're, we're encouraging everyone because unless unless you hear firsthand experiences that we're having and you're able to maybe put yourself in the place of even being a white person having a son and he drives off and you don't know if he's going to come back you don't know what that feeling probably feels like being a white person in America. So absolutely, we are encouraging everyone, there's something to be benefited, something to be gained, the importance of voter registration, how important local government is to any type of change in your city and county and how, why you should know who your mayor is, why you should know why you should vote for your mayor, why you should know why your council person is important, your board of supervisors, and that's what we call them here in the United States. So we want everyone to be a part of it because everything is a place of learning and you can't learn so absolutely definitely mm -hmm. that i will be there <laughs> Wonderful. Awesome. thank you yeah and yeah thank you so so much uh, to both of you for giving up your time and for, for diving uh, into this topic and and i really hope that listeners have have learned a lot and, and taken a lot away and are really feeling motivated to take that next step of the action of Yes, the education is important. The conversations are important. And I read somewhere something that uh, that racism, if we never talk about race and have these conversations about it and, and shy away from that conversation, then it's not going to change and having that sort of fear. So this is, I think, a, yeah, a great first step, but having that idea of what what to do next. So thank you for everything that you've shared. And I would absolutely recommend to the listeners to check out both Sheila and Tamari and uh, when I do my intro, I will remind people what episodes of the podcast you've been on previously. I can't remember off the top of my head, but so they, uh, yeah, they can listen to those if they haven't already. But I, I really appreciate both of you for 
giving up your time and for joining me again. And uh, as I said, I could talk to you all day. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you, Sheila. Thank you so much for having me, Hannah, on. I appreciate it. We will definitely yeah. be in touch. <laughs> Thank you for all, for all your input. Thank you. I learned learned some yeah, things too, too today. And Hannah, especially thank you for having us and be willing and open to sit with two black women mm -hmm. as a white woman and say, let's yeah. talk all, all holds barred. That's important. I hope that if listeners take one thing out of that, out of this whole interview is that's that's a great start. And that's so important. Am I willing to hear? Thank you for being willing to hear us. We appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Thank you. So thank you again to Sheila and to Marie for joining me for this episode. And I said I would do this for the intro, but I decided just to dive into the conversation. So just quickly here, if you are wanting to check out the episodes where we had more in-depth chats individually, then episode 41, we were joined by Tamari, and episode 43 by Sheila. So I would absolutely recommend checking uh, both those episodes out and also checking out what they've both got going on. And I've released this today so that you've got a couple of days if you're listening to this before the 9th to get tickets for the event that Tamari is involved with on the 9th of July. So thanks for uh, tuning in. Thanks again to my guests. And I'll be back Wednesday with a full episode. Take care. Bye.